Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, we've got stories about upcoming elections in Provincetown, Truro, and Harwich, as well as stories about infrastructure projects in Orleans and Harwich. And Ira Wood is here to say, just do it later, procrastinator. Massachusetts will hold its presidential primary election on Tuesday, March 5th, and voters in Provincetown will notice a change in how their votes are counted. The town has purchased a new electronic vote tabulator that will help increase election security and speed up the process of ballot counting and election result reporting. Paper ballots will still be used, but voters will now be asked to fill in an oval instead of making an X or a checkmark. The ballots will then be fed into a ballot scanning device. The device is able to tabulate the votes as they come in. Dan Riviello, Provincetown's assistant town manager, told the Cape Cod Times that the old system of counting ballots by hand typically took dozens of volunteers about four hours to complete. The new tabulator will yield results within minutes of the polls closing. More information about the tabulator is available online at provincetown-ma.gov. There's a new name in the race to replace outgoing state representative Sarah Peak. Hadley Luddy, CEO of the Homeless Prevention Council in Orleans, has announced her candidacy for the 4th Barnstable District seat being vacated in December. Luddy joins Orleans Select Board Chair Michael Herman, who has also announced his intention to run. Both candidates were actively collecting signatures for nomination papers during the 24th annual JFK President's Day gathering held by the Democratic Town Committee on Monday at the South Harwich Meeting House. Both candidates presented brief statements on their candidacies during the annual awards ceremony. Luddy, an Orleans resident, has owned her home in Orleans since 2001 and has been with the Homeless Prevention Council for the past eight years. She said housing, environment, infrastructure, and regional opportunities would be some of her priorities as a state representative. At the same function, Herman spoke of his long family history in Orleans and his record as a member of the Select Board and Affordable Housing Trust. Both candidates are Democrats. When Harwich voters go to the polls on April 9th to fill the unexpired term on the select board, there will be only one candidate on the ballot, former selectman Peter Pekarski. Although former Barnstable County Commissioner Leo Kakaunas took out nomination papers for the vacant seat, he told the Chronicle that he would not be filing those papers because he did not have the necessary 50 signatures. Pekarski took out nomination papers shortly after Kakaunas did so and filed them with the town clerk's office for certification shortly thereafter. Pekarski has also taken out nomination papers for the three-year term on the select board that will be on the annual election ballot on May 21st. 
Last Friday was the deadline for obtaining nomination papers for the special election to fill the seat vacated by select board member Mary Anderson, who resigned in October. Pekarski is the only candidate seeking the 43-day unexpired term. The date of the special election was pushed out so as not to conflict with the presidential primary election scheduled for March 5th. Nomination papers for positions on the annual election ballot can be obtained through March 29th and must be filed with the town clerk's office for certification by April 2nd. Pekarski is the only candidate so far who has obtained his papers for the three-year term on the Harwich Board. One more item of election preparation is the news this week that comes from the town of Truro, where the effort to nail down the dates for special and annual town meetings is affecting other important dates down the line. At the request of town clerk Elizabeth Verdi, the Truro Select Board voted unanimously on February 13th to postpone the annual town election from May 14th to May 29th. Verdi told the board that there are concerns about the amount of time between town meeting and the election, particularly if town meeting takes more than one day. One risk that the town would run without the delay would be insufficient time to print election ballots. Last fall's special town meeting is now scheduled for May 4th, with the regular annual town meeting likely to take place on May 5th. Verdi recommended postponing the election to at least May 20th, but noted that it could legally be delayed until June 30th. After discussion about the pre-Memorial Day crunch, the board voted to hold the election on May 29th. The postponed election will affect the deadline for filing nomination papers for positions that will appear on the ballot. Town manager Darren Tangeman told The Independent that those amended dates still require town council and clerk review, and that they should be confirmed in the next few days. Provincetown is looking for a real estate broker to help sell or lease the town-owned apartments at Harbor Hill. The 28-unit former timeshare complex is now home to 55 people. Whichever broker is chosen will have the job of recruiting outside parties that would rent units to qualified applicants earning between 80% and 200% of the area median income, the same income range the apartments are currently structured to serve. The bid invitation says that Harbor Hill would be conveyed with deed restrictions established by the legislation that created the year-round market rate rental housing trust. That legislation gives the trust the authority to establish alternative definitions for market rate. Members of the trust rejected a proposal last November to raise rents by several hundred dollars per month. Town manager Alex Morse weighed in on that debate, suggesting that the trustees look at the income of the town's median earners and work backwards from there to a rent schedule rather than using current listings of rental apartments to define market rate rent. The nonprofit developer constructing 65 apartments at 3 Jerome Smith Road conducted a study that found a market rate rent of $1,480 per month for a one-bedroom apartment in Provincetown. Just down the street at the old police station on Shankpainer Road, a redevelopment proposal for 40 market rate apartments included a rent schedule of up to $2,750 per month for a one-bedroom apartment. 
The tenants in Harbor Hill's one-bedroom units are currently paying between $1,040 and $1,550 per month. The legislation that created the year-round market rate rental housing trust gives it the authority to buy and sell property without a town meeting vote. The trust will hold a public hearing to discuss any offers it receives to buy or lease Harbor Hill. Provincetown is also moving forward with a program from Placemate.com called Lease to Locals. The company, founded by a former marketing director at Airbnb, provides subsidies to property owners to turn their short-term rental properties into year-round rentals. The subsidies are based on the number of tenants who sign a one-year lease and are funded by the town's share of the rooms tax on stays in hotels and short-term rentals. Placemates typically requires that tenants in their subsidized properties work in the same county as the property. But town select board members said that people who work remotely should also be eligible. Prospective tenants must earn less than 150% of the area median income, which is $127,000 per year for a single person. The amount of the subsidy depends on how many working tenants are on the lease and ranges from $6,000 to $20,000 per year. The rent that property owners can charge for a property with a placemate lease is also capped. Studio apartments may be rented for up to $1,600 per month. One-bedroom units may be rented for $2,200 per month. Two-bedroom units for $3,000 and three-bedroom units for $3,800. The board voted unanimously to move $348,500 in rooms tax money from the town's housing fund to the year-round market rate rental housing trust fund to pay for a one-year lease-to-locals pilot program. Trust members were set to vote on the program on Wednesday, February 21st, with the program itself set to begin on April 1st. The Chatham-Marconi Maritime Center on Route 28 near Riders Cove started in 1914 as the site of radio pioneer Marconi's wireless receiving station. Before closing in 1997, the installation was the busiest ship-to-shore station in the country. During World War II, the campus was a naval site, employing up to 300 personnel, working 24-7 to capture enemy U-boat communications. The hub of the current center, which opened in 2010, offers exhibits set up in the former operations building where the communications took place. Now, the center's collection of artifacts has been digitized and made available in a newly built archive center. Past research required handling often delicate items that were stored in a small office or across town in borrowed space at the Atwood Museum. The new archive is triple the size of the old space, and officials have a goal of making the database accessible online from anywhere. There are photos of U.S. Navy staffers working to intercept coded Nazi messages during World War II, and recordings of reminiscences by people who watched 20th century maritime history unfold. The Golden Age of Transatlantic Ocean Liners exhibit shows how the Chatham Station linked passengers on famous passenger ships to people on land. The station also communicated with aviation pioneers, including Charles Lindbergh, Amelia Earhart, and Howard Hughes. 
The Chatham Marconi Maritime Center is open seasonally and by appointment in the winter. You can find out more by visiting chathammarconi.org. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. Property owners in downtown Orleans have until March 16th to connect to the town's sewer or risk the potential for daily fines. But many property owners are unlikely to meet that deadline due to the difficulty in finding engineers and contractors to do the work. In response, the sewer commissioners and the Board of Health earlier this month both voted in favor of instituting a deferral process that would give property owners an additional six months to connect provided they can show they're working toward making their connections. The town website has a link to a form that property owners can fill out to apply for a deferral, which would extend their connection deadline to September 16th. Applicants must submit supporting materials, such as a signed contract with an engineer, as proof that they're in the process of connecting. Those that have yet to connect fall into two categories— There are those who are in the process of making their connections but may not meet the deadline. Then there are those who have not been in contact with the town at all about their connections. Three letters have gone out to property owners since last March informing them of the need to tie into the sewer. The Board of Water and Sewer Commissioners voted on February 14th to issue two more letters. The first would go to those property owners who have not been in contact with the town, reminding them that they need to apply for a deferral, otherwise they could be met with a daily fine of $250 for every day they're not in compliance after March 16th. The town's health agent, Alex Fitch, estimated that there are more than 130 property owners who have not been in contact with the town about their connections. The second letter will be sent to those property owners actively working on their connections, alerting them that they now have until September 16th to tie into the sewer. Those property owners do not need to fill out a deferral form. It seems likely that some property owners will need even more time beyond September to complete the process. David Currier, who owns the Alley Bowling and Barbecue on Route 6A and the neighboring laundromat, said the earliest he's been able to find an engineer ready to begin work was in August. But he asked that he be able to schedule his connections after the summer season. Assistant Water Superintendent Susan Brown said the commissioners would need to vote specifically on that request at a later date. There's good news for major infrastructure projects in Harwich. At the last annual town meeting, voters appropriated $24 million for water main installation and a dry sewer main running along Route 28 on the west side of town. But new estimates for those projects have come in at less than half of that amount. Voters approved $17.5 million for new water mains extending from Harwichport to the Dennistown line, The new lines will replace mains installed in the 30s and 40s deemed to be beyond their useful lives. The latest cost estimate for that project came in at just over $8 million. Town Meeting also approved $6.5 million for the dry sewer system that would extend from the Herring River Bridge to the Dennistown line 
and that cost estimate has been adjusted to around $1.2 million. The town is coordinating these projects with the state, which has planned resurfacing of Route 28 from the Herring River to the Dennistown line starting in the fall of 2025. Coordinating the water and sewer projects with the Mass DOT allows the town to save money by making the installations while the road is under construction and being resurfaced. Once the road is resurfaced, MassDOT will place a five-year moratorium on road cutting for such installations. Water and Wastewater Superintendent Dan Peltier said the lowered estimates are partly due to the fact that these projects were being developed as the country was coming out of the pandemic when supply chain issues were still prevalent. While water main replacement from the Herring River Bridge to the Dennistown line will not occur until MassDOT begins working on Route 28 in the fall of 25, Peltier said his department is now submitting plans to the state for the installation of the water mains from the east side of the Herring River Bridge to South Street in Harwichport, and he expects that installation will begin in September. The commercial wharf and bulkhead at Rock Harbor in Orleans is in dire need of repair. Now, after a lengthy permitting and design process, the facility could be in line for a major overhaul if voters approve funding for the construction at the annual town meeting in May. A proposal made to the select board calls for new floating docks in front of the wharf and at the town pier to the north, upgraded underground utilities, the installation of a hoist system for offloading catch, a restabilized wall near the neighboring charter fleet docks, and a small public seating area. Nate Sears, the town's natural resources manager, said an upgraded facility will give the 12 to 15 commercial fishing vessels that pay for dockage in Rock Harbor the same amenities that recreational boaters have had for some time, including running water and new gangways. Meanwhile, a new floating dock will allow for end-in vessel docking in front of the wharf. Currently, vessels are tied abreast together, extending into the harbor channel. The existing wharf will be set back an additional 20 feet, which will help keep the channel clear for other vessels to navigate. The project is currently estimated to cost between 6 and $7 million, but a firm project cost is expected to be ready in time for town meeting. The project is expected to go out to bid in March. If the funding is approved, construction could begin in October and conclude in April of 2025. There's also the possibility of lowering the project cost by as much as $3 million through the receipt of state grant funding. The town plans to apply for up to $1 million through the Seaport Economic Council, as well as up to $2 million from the State Office of Coastal Zone Management. East Ham's short-term rental registration fee will increase from $75 this year to $350 in 2025. The projected increase in revenue will fund stricter oversight of more than 1,000 short-term rentals that town manager Jackie Beebe said Eastham is struggling to supervise. The select board unanimously supported the increase at its February 5th meeting. Beebe said the money would cover some of the costs of the town's housing coordinator, housing inspector, and an administrative assistant for health, 
as well as compliance services from Granicus, a short-term rental tracking company also used by Provincetown and Barnstable. Beebe said that Easttown does not have a system for accurately counting short-term rentals, tracking complaints about them, or estimating the income they generate. Town staff asked Granicus to do an initial assessment last month, and the company found that about a quarter of East Ham's short-term rentals are not registered with the town. Beebe noted that the town has received many complaints from residents regarding short-term rentals, particularly in the summer. Overloaded septic systems could harm the town's water supply, and residents sometimes report seeing small cottages with 10 cars in the driveway. Granicus is able to check the capacity offered in short-term rental listings against the property's septic capacity. Truro's Select Board also raised its short-term rental registration fee this month from $225 to $415 per year to help pay for its oversight efforts. Provincetown raised its fee from $100 every three years to $750 per year, in January of 23. The owners of Wellfleet's three liquor stores have decided to give 10-cent rebates to people who return empty nip bottles. The move is a result of a petition to ban nips in Wellfleet, which was ultimately rejected by town meeting last year. The owners of Seaside Liquors, Wellfleet Spirits Shop, and Wellfleet Wine and Spirits decided to unite to fight the ban and to do their part to lessen nip litter. The owners claimed that banning nip sales in town wouldn't stop people from buying them somewhere else, nor would it solve the litter problem. It would only hurt Wellfleet businesses. Nine towns in the state have banned the sales of nip bottles, including Brewster, Falmouth, Mashpee, Plymouth, and Wareham. In Falmouth, a nip ban went into effect in October of 21. Before last year's town meeting, the owners urged voters not to pass the ban. They circulated pamphlets asking voters to support proposed bills in the House and Senate that would expand the bottle bill, create parity in the market, and tackle the litter challenge. The bills propose incrementally increasing the percentage of redeemed and recycled beverage containers so that by 2031, 95% are redeemed and recycled. The 10 cent payback reward rebate program started this month. People can get cash for the empty nips or use the money towards store purchases. Al Kogos, owner of Seaside Liquors, said the retailers are trying to do their part to help promote less litter. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. I know I should have removed that small mountain of snow the plow left in front of my driveway last week because now it's just a pile of ice and backing into it can cost you a taillight. But I have a tendency to procrastinate and I think a lot of us do too. For instance, I have a friend who's now a well-known nature writer. She was struggling until she got her first 
big commission to write the introduction to a large-format wall calendar about famous gardens, the kind with those big, voluptuous photographs. The money was really substantial, and she said she was eager to start. A few weeks later, I asked how it was going, and she said she was driving down to Philadelphia to look at the Longwood Gardens. And sometime after that, she was flying down to Miami to see the Kampong Botanical Garden in Coconut Grove. When she told me about going to the Sherman Gardens in Corona del Mar, I got it. She was procrastinating, researching instead of writing, because she was terrified. Better not to start than to finish an imperfect job. I asked her to consider one question. Who the hell ever reads the introduction to a wall calendar? No one, of course, and the realization loosened her right up. Writers are the world's best procrastinators, so I count myself among the elite. J.K. Rowling, who wastes hours on Minecraft, Hunter Thompson, who's an adrenaline junkie who couldn't even start without the pressure of an impossible deadline, and even Victor Hugo, who only finished The Hunchback of Notre Dame by locking away all his clothing so he could not leave his house. Procrastination is a big problem big enough to have spawned a small industry of books, therapists, and life coaches. The average employee wastes over two hours every single workday, getting coffee, surfing the web, gabbing with colleagues. I'm guilty of all of this. But I take heart in the fact that some of history's most famous geniuses have been procrastinators. After visiting the Galapagos Islands, Charles Darwin wrote The Origin of the Species, the very foundation of evolutionary biology. We all know that, right? What we didn't know is that it took him 20 years to publish the book. What else was he doing? Studying barnacles, earthworms, orchids, a zillion little projects instead of the big one he was known for. Then there's Leonardo da Vinci, who began projects in sculpture, architecture, mathematics, engineering, anatomy, geology, astronomy, botany, and cartography instead of completing the work he was paid for. When the Duke of Milan chastised him for taking three years to finish the Last Supper, Leonardo said, well, there's only two heads left to paint, that of Christ and that of Judas. He was having trouble finding a model for Judas, he said, but he would use the image of the Duke if the Duke continued to hound him. Everyone admires the work of Frank Lloyd Wright, America's most famous architect. Hired to design a summer retreat for a Pittsburgh businessman, Wright blew off the assignment for nine months before his client grew frustrated and announced he was dropping by Wright's office to see the plans. Suddenly, worried about losing the commission, Wright sat down to the drafting table and in two hours completed the design of Falling Water, one of the most iconic houses in American architecture. 
Why do we procrastinate? Maybe like Darwin, we need to hone our abilities on small projects before we tackle big ones. Maybe like Leonardo, we get distracted by all there is in the world to learn. Or maybe like Frank Lloyd Wright, we're just actually designing something in our heads long before we take pencil to paper. So, why didn't I get rid of the ice mountain in my driveway? I kind of like the reasoning of my old friend Dale. When I once asked him why he never shoveled snow, he said, Why should I? I didn't put it there. So, as the saying goes, Just do it later, procrastinator. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher, Jacob Greenberg, and Karen and Joel Shaw for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz. It's Lush Life with Scott Penn here on listener-supported Outermost Community Radio. WOMR.